You are the cult leader of my cult. I'm a parent, and I raised <laughs> children. I'll give you that. For me, my shame breakthrough was the moment I left the cult of our family. Getting discomfortable with my mother. Your grandson told me a story about a dream that he had, where he woke up and then couldn't move. And you said that you had a similar dream. I wonder if you could tell us that story. Well, that story was a time that would have only been a very few days after. Jim's father died, so my father-in-law, and、um, I was struggling with, of course, the first major death that I was to encounter personally in my life of somebody I knew well, and so I had gone for a nap, I thought, and had been saying, you know, where did he go, and what's this whole death business about anyway, and I want to, I want to know where he is. So in my recollection, my eyes were open. I could see the room around me. I heard something that sounded like somebody's knee cracking, and there, standing in the doorway, was Jim's father, wearing a red, white, and blue striped pair of pajamas, which was a fabric that I had actually used to make a tablecloth for Jim's parents as a gift. But he was wearing the fabric as pajamas, and he was gesturing with his finger, like the "come hither" sort of finger, and、uh, as if I had a choice and I could go with him if I wanted to. And of course, I panicked and did not want to go with him.、Uh, but I couldn't wake up from what was already a waking state. I could still see everything in the room and. See him as like I really don't want this outcome, so I just sort of felt myself trying to make my body move or twitch or wake up or whatever, and I don't recall when I actually woke up or how that scene changed. I just have a vivid image of Jim's dad standing in the doorway, crooking his finger at me as if not saying anything, just as if to say, "Yeah, you want to go? Come on, and I'll show you where I'm going." So it's not clear if it's actually sleep paralysis or if the whole thing was a dream, or a hallucination or something. It, yes, it. The weird thing, like I thought it was an out of body experience. I thought that I was in some alternate reality, and that my body was this inanimate object lying on a bed, and I was trying to get back into it. That's how I framed it in my own mind. Interesting. So sleep paralysis as a form of out of body experience, and your body can't move until you're back in your body. Yeah, something like that. And didn't you say that you thought you didn't get to him quick enough? Oh yes, the real nightmare was that.、Um, well, as in waking nightmare, was that he had been sailing in、uh, Pigeon Lake with his nephew, Jim's cousin. And for the first time, probably ever since he started competing with Jim、uh, and the other sailors at Pigeon Lake,、uh, he was in the lead boat, and I was driving the crash boat. 
And I had been instructed, never cut across the course. If you're going to go help somebody out, you have to go around the course so you don't create a wake. So I did what I was told until somebody yelled at me, like, just cut across. So I did. Um, and they did pull him out of the water where he'd had a heart attack. He'd keeled over into the water. And they did CPR in the boat and uh, couldn't save him. So that was a terrible day. So he was sailing and he fell in the water. Yeah, had the heart attack, keeled over into the water. And then, of course, all the other boats were sailboats. So uh, the crash boat was the one on hand that brought him to shore. And they worked on him for quite a while, but they never did revive him. And there were several doctors on the beach. So I, theoretically, I guess if he was going to be saved, he, he would have been. But that was still a nightmare for me to think, oh, what if I'd done something different? But I hadn't. So mm-hmm. that haunted me for a long time. So maybe that was part of the dream, a join me guilt more than a curiosity guilt. Yeah, probably thinking, oh, well, you know, I should have been the one to go because I screwed up. Or was it a sense of like, you know, like a parent being like, you're in trouble, come over here, kind of? No, it didn't feel that way. He was always a little bit mischievous. You know, he he liked to argue with people. He was, uh, yeah, and he'd been a little bit testy that that weekend. Um, so, you know, we'd probably had some kind of lighthearted argument about something. He didn't let things go that easily. So, um, yeah, it was more just his usual sort of mischief kind of look. Although uh, there was absolutely no way I wanted to go. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very strange experience. I, I don't think I've ever had that experience again. You never had another out-of-body experience? No, no. I've had, like, you know, images sort of come alive before, which were always interesting. Like what? Um, Well, I very seriously, a few, well, quite a few years after that, became interested in Eastern uh, philosophy and studied Vedanta philosophy and was avidly reading about Sri Ramakrishna. And uh, then I had, again, it was sort of, this would happen mostly if I was having a nap, so I wouldn't even really think that I was asleep. Um, And he appeared, and he was gesturing towards somebody, which I later thought might have been Sri Aurobindo, but that's just strictly me making something up. Who appeared? The, the Sri guru? Ramakrishna. Okay. Yeah, Sri Ramakrishna appeared. And uh, it was always in this kind of intermediate reality where everything else was the same, but there was this hologram of, of a person there, which always kind of makes me curious to know that they might be there anyway. We just don't see them. And could you move in this version? Um, I didn't feel like I had body paralysis, but I didn't want to go with him either. And he was beckoning you as well? Yes, it was a kind of, you know, I'd like you to meet so-and-so. So when did you get interested in, like, Eastern philosophy and spirituality? Um, well, I got to Vancouver in 1988, And we had pretty well lost everything. We had left Alberta. We had made a false start in Toronto after even making a quicker false start in Texas. 
And so I was kind of um, a little bit scattered in terms of what I thought brought me security. And uh, a friend of mine said, well, you might be interested in meditation in the Vedanta tradition of whom Sri Ramakrishna was the spiritual leader. And so that was what got me interested. And I was pretty, as always, if I was interested in something, I really dove in with both feet. So, and I really, that interest kind of persisted in various forms right up until about four years ago. So 2014, when I just sort of, I'm done with that now. (laughs) (laughs) So now you have no spirituality anymore. No, I do. I I do. But it feels much. uh, I think I was reading. uh, I think it was a Thomas Merton title on the Internet this morning, a a religion of one's own. And I think that I've just created, cobbled together. But after many years of study and many workshops and getting a master's in transpersonal studies, I think I've just got the toolbox that works for me. Well, I feel like you've been featured in the podcast in absentia a few times, or my childhood or something. I wondered if you had any rebuttals. Well, I don't think childhood is a cult. (laughs) (laughs) You don't think childhood is a cult? No, I do not think childhood is a cult. Well, I think if you are talking about a helpless organism, basically a baby... Mm-hmm. that comes into the world, the person parenting that baby has a responsibility to see to their survival and mm-hmm. and ideally that they would, would thrive, they would live into adulthood, they would find some meaning and purpose in life and and they would know and how understand how to um, socialize, how to be a Of course, no one's going to argue with this. So everything that you teach your children, and parents only really have a fairly small influence on the children after the first five years. The, the, <laughs> I don't think that's true. Well, it, it depends, but certainly um, the role of the parent is to prepare a child to live a long and hopefully fruitful life. So they're going to have they're going to pass on some of their coping mechanisms, how they understand the world to operate. And if indeed those those are not examined and they're just sort of, this is what we do in our family, you know, we string up people who steal our cattle or whatever, then there's going to be influences on a child that are maybe not going to be very salutary. But How is a cult leader any different? Well, because a cult leader takes... Uh, an ideology usually based on people's insecurities, people's need to belong. Not necessarily. I, um, I believe a cult leader could genuinely believe that what they believe is true. Yes, but they're looking for um, obedience beyond questioning. Isn't which that is, what parents are looking for? Well, some, but not all. At I a certain age, your children need to be obedient without question. Well, look at all the kids that are complete brats that you can't go to a restaurant and eat through a 
decent meal because they're jumping up and down and throwing macaroni. Like, where are their parents? Where are their Well, maybe the their parents there? don't value, like, that's not what they taught their children. Then their childhood is, childhood can't be a cult when people are well, yeah, they've been, so They've indoctrinated their children in a way that says, it's all right if you behave a little bit bratty at a restaurant. Well, either that or they haven't really exercised any kind of influence on the child in a meaningful way, and they're just letting the child rule the household. No, I don't think that's necessarily true. If you cared as much about your child behaving at a restaurant as you did about your child surviving, your children would behave at that restaurant. It's about what that parent values in terms of what they want to indoctrinate their child with. And I feel like the degree of control in certain settings is different than others, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, you want your children to behave, but not to the degree that you are going to grab them and yell at them if they are running in the street. Well, I'm lost because I'm thinking about cult and how, to me, a cult has to be something that's subscribed to across a larger demographic than the size of a family. Why? I just think that that's how I consider a cult. I'd be but curious. A cult, to... a cult under the under the number of thirty isn't a cult. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a I'd cop maybe out. pick a different number, but I don't think it I just be imply... a cult of five people. It could be, but if you take any family, you don't find all five of those people growing up to subscribe to the very same belief system. I think that individuals the, in families branch out all over the place, even, you know, whoever the Dugers or whoever those people were with their millions of kids, you know, they all looked like they prescribed to the same kind of ideology. And then some of them, you know, kind of ran amok and showed that it's not. A I don't know what the Dugers are, but I feel like some people legitimately do leave the brainwashing of the cult and of the family and go off and do their own thing. For sure. Um, But other people think that they've left the brainwashing of the family, but really, on a deeper level, they haven't. Well, one of my favorite mentors, Hilvi Rumet, she said, you never really leave the social matrix in which you were born and raised. And that, to me, is a brainwashing. I I think that's just a fact of life. I don't think that's brainwashing. Well, I I hope it's not a fact of life. I would like to leave the social matrix that I was born into, or I would like to so leave it. So what does it. that look like? How do you leave? What, what does it look like when you leave that social matrix? To me, it would be a process of trying to see the world through as many different viewpoints as possible from the viewpoints of as many different people as possible. Something like I literally want to do with this podcast is interview the kind of person who seems totally crazy to me and try to see what their logic and worldview is through their eyes. And I feel like if I do that enough, I will see how my viewpoint is just one of many and arbitrary. Yeah, but you're just saying you're indoctrinated as as a child. So I'm saying your indoctrination is part of what led you to do this. If I had had thoroughly indoctrinated (laughs) you, you might not even be remotely interested. Well, you're right in the sense that you have always been a very inquisitive person. So my inquisitiveness could be indoctrinated from you. It could also be partially genetic similarities between us. But I will also say that before I had my shame breakthrough, I wasn't as interested in these things. So I think for me, my shame breakthrough was the moment I left the cult of our family. 
I would argue that developmentally speaking, your shame breakthrough came at an age that um, even in Ayurveda, they talk about how the first sort of midlife crisis, if you want to call it that, happens between the ages of 25 and 35. Where yeah, people and I think that's what a midlife crisis often is, is but, a shame but, breakthrough. But as, a, as an organism, you're functioning with the awareness, at least it's hardwired into you somewhere, you're functioning with the awareness that you need to stay within the tribe in order to survive. That's yeah, part of your that's reptilian built, brain. That's uh, yeah, there. absolutely. That is shame. I didn't put that there. That's there. I know. That is absolutely true. And I think that is part of what makes childhood a cult. I'm not saying that you are a nefarious cult leader. I'm saying that shame, which is a natural part of every human, compels us to follow, to conform. Shame yeah. is the guard dog of conformity. And it it pressures us to be like the people that we are around, a.k.a. our family. And so I'm just saying that's what I mean. Our whole childhood is a, is a brainwashing, cult-like experience naturally. It's natural. But I think it's healthy at a certain point to recognize that and then say, oh, if that's true, I need to break out of that cult. Yes, but really I'd argue that that cult is also something that your ego has created as the parameters of a life that is survivable by you in this case. This is what... Well, because my ego has been brainwashed. Or your ego has brainwashed you, for that matter. What do I you don't know. Mean? I don't think an ego... I don't think you're born with an ego that has... Um, ideologies. I think that your ego, your strategies for survival are learned, probably. I'm mm-hmm. sure that there's a certain f- fright reflex that is innate, but I would say most human strategies for survival are learned. And our e- so our ego looks to learned ideology to keep us safe. Well, some people consider, they describe the ego as like a bundle of sticks, And each stick could be a coping mechanism, an experience, or something like that. The ego is just the collection of experiences that that you're using to compose your worldview. And based on the information that this egoic bundle of sticks provides you, that can determine the choices that you make. And granted, if if you're at the mercy of that ego, then you're going to be stuck with the limits of the ego, which is why people like me bring in spiritual practice to say, I want to transcend the influences of my ego. Right. You're I mean, saying, I think you're saying a very similar thing. The cult. So yeah. I, who gave the ego all those sticks? It was the family. The family was there. The family was part of those experiences. Like, I feel like the your ego collected all there, the family your teachers experiences. were there, your yeah. newspapers were there, your peers were there. But generally, you I'd know. say that the family and its culture are kind of symbiotic. And the indoctrination you receive from the family is reinforced or vice versa by the indoctrination you receive from your culture, which includes your teachers, your politicians, your celebrities, your, you know, whatever. That It's all a system that's mm-hmm. combined. It's called society. Yeah, well, it's called society, sure. But, I mean, specifically, you look for the parts of society that tend to agree with your own familial culture. 
So it's not the whole society, you know, like we we looked for true. things that this is true. that reinforced the cult of our family. Absolutely. I will agree with that. I, I don't like to call it a cult, but whatever word you can put that I find less offensive is what you're saying. We we use that to create a microideology of how we a macroideology. Macroideology <laughs> of how we can best navigate the world in which we find ourselves, which is why it's really healthy to travel. Because for me, it wasn't so much a shame breakthrough as to go somewhere, go to South Africa, meet a woman my age living in a township who commuted to work three hours, I think, both ways, and 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 be in that township and suddenly feel completely vulnerable to, I may never get out of here. Like, what if this was my life. And it just took that moment of extreme vulnerability to see that everything I took for granted was just a little small piece of the whole. Right. And so who that, I took myself to be was just a little piece of every potential I had to become. So we're in agreement. It's just that you don't like the word cult. I do not. But to no. me, it's such an effective word because, because cult is a negative term everybody knows you got to get out of a cult. And so when I describe childhood as a cult or as a brainwashing, it's clear right away that people are like, oh, I need to get out of that. That's like, that's, even if you get out of it just to go right back in of your own volition is different than never getting out of the cult of your childhood. Well, if it means, yes, getting out of all the things that you just took for granted and didn't question, mm -hmm. not it didn't examine, then yes, absolutely, I agree wholeheartedly. You have to ask, where, where did I, is this authentic to me? I had lots of beliefs, and I'm still finding beliefs that aren't authentic to me, but I wouldn't know that if I hadn't stopped and stepped away and asked, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I don't, this isn't true for me. But otherwise, previous to that, I would just be operating on the assumption, often very entitled, that I was, you know, from the white Western upper middle class world, and this is how the world is. Mm -hmm. and, so you know. my point then would be to connect with that experience with the fact that you have children and that your children are your brainwashed cult followers, your children, <laughs> as they would say in a cult. And so you have then indoctrinated your children with all those beliefs, even the beliefs that you now realize aren't even your own beliefs. It's like this ongoing system. You were indoctrinated by your mother and father. They were indoctrinated by their parents. And, and it goes on and on and on. So I think when you realize that childhood is a cult as a parent, then there's an incentive to say, how do I deprogram my own children from my own cult family? <laughs> Yes. Well, I think that I've been doing that for the past couple of decades anyway. You think you've been deprogramming us? Well, to the extent that I try to be um, more aware of the effect that I'm having on my children, but also that I'm more aware of ages and stages and how their independence is fostered or inhibited by things that I might do and say. I've always tried to find ways to be more part of the solution of somebody becoming the kind of tree they is or the kind of fish they is, according to whatever that little book is. 
That's what I've wanted for my kids is that that's why I wanted each child to pursue things that gave their life heart and meaning, you know. I guess the way I see it, instead of ending the cult, the cult leader tried to continue to get better ideologies for the cult. You see what I mean? No. So if you realized that you literally were the leader of a cult. Yeah, but I haven't, so we have to <laughs> go back there. Well, you you agree with me that childhood is a cult. You just don't like the word cult. So if childhood is a cult, though you don't like the word cult, you are the cult leader of my cult, even I'm, though you don't like that word. I'm a parent, and I raised <laughs> children. I'll give you that. Right, I'm so whatever a, that process is. Okay, so so what is the point? Well, imagine if you suddenly realized that Oh, all these people that I thought were my friends are following me and they're brainwashed because I've been leading a cult. Um, Would you, how would you, how would you deprogram them? I would encourage them to think for themselves. So if somebody came to me with a problem or with a situation, which I've, you've heard me say many times, um, what would you do differently? If this is not an outcome you wanted, what would you do differently next time? How can, how does this lesson serve you? Try and get people to reflect on what's happening to them instead of react. That's just one example. What if you were like, you shouldn't be asking me at all? That would be hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be no fun. <laughs> well, I believe in having a relationship with my family. They're the most of important course. people in my life. So I'm not going to tell them to just, you know, go on do whatever they, I, I want to be there if there's some element that I usually try not to give advice. I usually get shut down if I give advice. So if I'm asked for some kind of insight or if somebody just wants to download something, then that's my role as a parent, I believe, to be there, be the sounding board at least. I don't see that being a cult leader, per se. I think <laughs> that I, leadership, what is good leadership? Yes. Mm-hmm. But once your children are adults, should you continue to lead them? Even when they keep asking you for it? I don't know if that's a literal kind of behavior pattern. I would just say to relate, to connect. I don't really see that well, as leading. You did say to lead. Well, what is good leadership? Leadership is when the peop- the followers stand on the shoulders of the leader. That's good leadership. That's what I mean by that. How can I put you on my shoulders so you can see what I can't see and you can do what I can't do? Yeah, it's a nice metaphor. I guess I just think it's sort of in a shame view time to think about how best to alleviate people from shame. And to me, the big difference in a you know shame breakthrough is that you go from receiving, looking for external validation and external leadership to internal validation and internal leadership. And so I think I'm trying to figure out what the strategies are for helping everyone in like literally the whole world get over their shame, not just in our family. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think you can. I think you can really only lead by example. I sometimes question the motives behind people who are in the public eye, supposedly doing good, and I'm not entirely confident in their motives. It's kind of like the "what big ears you have, Grandma." Right. Well, I think that's a very valid point because I would also argue that it's difficult to say whether a parent like you can say that they're leading from an altruistic place or that they're leading because their whole value and identity is wrapped up in being a good leader. Yeah, I mean, as a parent or as a, as, like I said, as somebody who is a community figure, as a parent, you have to examine, I have to examine why I think and feel and do and say what I do um, to be clear that my motives are pure, that I'm not manipulating my kids, which I'm pretty good at, actually, <laughs> to get an outcome that I want, which might be to get everybody to come to a family meeting or a family gathering or Christmas or whatever. Um, as a fairly um, career mother... Um, I think that some of my success is invested in getting my family together. I think there's a part of me that wants South Fork. I want all my family to live in one big extended home, in, in this case mm -hmm. it's Texas, and have so everybody. Wh <laughs> why do you think you want that? Because as sort of like a mother bird or whatever other kind of mother figure, it's to me, I always like gathering my children or I even feel, which I know is unfair, a sense of responsibility for everybody's health, wealth and well-being. And so the best way to do that is to get everybody back under one roof, which is, of course. Is that the best way to do that? No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, this is so... Given my own way, that's probably how it would have been. But obviously, with the wisdom of years of experience and study and whatnot, I can see that that would absolutely be the worst thing. Right. So there is there do. are conflicting things in there. One side is like, continue to be mother at all costs. Yeah, And absolutely. the other side is, do good. And those things are not always aligned. Absolutely. I would have to give you that. I wouldn't be self-aware if I couldn't say. There's lots of times when I just wanted to go back to the way it was when I had a little family and I was the chief architect. Mm -hmm. And very understandable, of course. Do you think that you have left the cult of your family? Um, oh, I've gone a long way. I would say I've gone a very long way of leaving what I would actually not call the cult of my family. But I <laughs> Well, we know that. <laughs> you don't like that word. I do not like that word. But in terms of um, behaviors that I witnessed that I didn't want to duplicate, I very early on went looking for other examples. But like anybody else, I had to rebel, or I thought I did to define myself. So early on, you could see that the family structure you had wasn't exactly what you wanted. Yes. Yeah. So you rebelled. I did. Apparently you were quite rebellious. I was. I was quite rebellious. And it, <laughs> and it served me well because um, 
anytime I would rebel initially, I can see was pretty immature and probably shooting myself in the foot. But to have a rebellious nature also implies that I'm not a conformist. So what if we were really rebellious? Would you have seen that as a positive thing? Well, what I tried to do was give you enough latitude that you didn't have to resort to rebellion just for the sake of being rebelling. If we gave you the message that you were trusted and that you could be your own judge of what was acceptable behavior, then that was your responsibility, but not mine. we actually couldn't be our own judge of what was acceptable behavior. That, that we trust you thing is a trap. It says we trust you to act within the parameters of what we think is all right. Because if you, if you don't, you'll be in trouble. Yeah, that was that worked. And, but that was it was exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it's not it's not a liberation. It's a trick. And I think it worked. It did work. Nobody rebelled, really. I mean, not really. No. You. <laughs> but likewise, what were you going to rebel against? Well, what would so you're saying it was so perfect we had nothing to rebel exactly, against? Exactly. That's exactly. Well, we had a, Yeah. I mean, I guess you know. Touche. Though I'm sure they're, well, being the gay kid, I could say that that was something to rebel against. The, there was no, you know, that wasn't part of the system because. Well, we didn't, yeah, we had no, we had no precedent for that. Mm-hmm. All the more reason why it's important for, I guess, rebellion to happen. So how would it have looked if you had rebelled? I don't know. It's hard to imagine what would have happened if I came out at a younger age, like at 16, like some kids do now. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you think you would have reacted? Probably the same as I did when you came out <laughs> in your 30s. Right. So not the greatest reaction, not the worst reaction. No, no. I, but you've heard me say I'm not proud of my reaction. And I'll just take ownership of that and say I realized, as I frequently do, that I have points where I, what I call my learning edge. And the only thing in my favor is that when I recognize the learning edge, I will go there and have always, have always done that. And so I think it's just an opportunity. I've thought of that because I was, have very, had very little exposure to the deaf community or the blind community. And there's a restaurant that we drive by on the way home and it's called dark, and you eat in the dark. And the people who work there are are blind or visually impaired. And I thought to myself, you know what, I really haven't exposed myself to that community. But because you came out as being gay, I exposed myself to the gay community. I had to go somewhere where I didn't know mentally I had ever had to explore. Right. But I mean, have you ever been to a pride parade? No, but I don't go to any parades. I'm not a parader. <laughs> I mean, your gay community is pretty small. It's me and a couple boyfriends that you've met. No, that's what you know. I have other <laughs> gay friends in other walks of life. Okay. And I don't think I I don't think I have any gay people in my circle of acquaintance 
who would say that I was homophobic or that I hadn't made them feel wholeheartedly accepted by Right, but then you weren't able to immediately accept your own child, so there's a contradiction there. That's not a contradiction, that's growth. I grew, I realized. Right, but they would have felt accepted beforehand, but they weren't really. Because you were like, well, yeah, I accept you as long as you're not related to me. Yeah, I very much remember an incident where I was at the ashram and there were two lesbians there. And we, of course, it was a level playing field at the ashram. Everybody is who they are. And one of them said to me, if we called and said we were coming to stay with you, would you be okay with that? And I paused just long enough for her to get her answer. (laughs) And I was ashamed of myself. And it showed me, and I really do believe that life gives me the lessons I need and that there's a lot that I don't know and I may never know because it's not necessarily up to me to contribute anything in that particular arena. So I would have had little or no contact with the gay community if you hadn't been gay. I would have had probably some unconscious biases and prejudices that I didn't know I had. And then when I was confronted with it, it was like anything else. It's like, oh, this is something I need to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think in my own defense, I really did go into that and, and explore where I came from. And again, examining, okay, where did I get this idea from? And is mm-hmm. this authentic to me? And that's just my responsibility. Right. Well, I mean, that is this authentic to me. I mean, what even is authentic you you have to learn all of that. There's no there's nothing authentic about being homophobic. I don't think in terms of just like a child, a child would just be like, oh okay, so that's how. Yeah, it is. but I grew up in Alberta where there was an Indian reservation down the beach, and it was very clear that I was not to go there, and that they were lesser human beings. I grew up thinking that Native Americans, Indigenous people, whatever you want to call them were a subset of human that was lower than my own. And and I don't think anybody ever questioned that. I don't think anybody said, oh, this is wrong and you know I'm sure somebody did. Oh, and people did, but nobody nobody around me. It wasn't like we were bucking the trend by being right. you know, prejudiced. It was you wouldn't even have called it a prejudice. It was just a given. And I didn't realize that until much, much later, just how that belief system was, I hadn't questioned it. Just like people will tell you when they were raised in South Africa, whites in South Africa, it never occurred to them that this mm-hmm. system was unjust. It just was. Mm-hmm. Right. And to me, that's just like the cult of childhood in action. Until you can realize that everything you believe is not to be taken for granted. It's like mm-hmm. to be challenged because... Whatever you were raised in is going to seem totally normal to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like that's... Well, you've heard me quote Gandhi numerous times where he says, you know, don't take anybody's word for anything, but think about it, analyze it. If it agrees with reason and conduces to the good of one and all, then believe it and live up to it. But in order to know what reason is, you have to at least have enough self-awareness to see where your idea of reason comes from. Mm-hmm. And so that to mm-hmm. me, like it's like, it's not enough to just be thoughtful. You actually need to go backwards and challenge your foundation. I think 
my gut instinct around somebody acting even remotely strange on the subway is get off the subway. Mm-hmm. And really, they might just have Tourette syndrome, and there's nothing dangerous about them at all. Or mm-hmm. they might, you know, have uh, they might be neuroatypical or something. You know, like it doesn't mean they're dangerous or that they're bad or even necessarily that there's anything wrong with them. And so that to me is a perfect example of how I need to like go go in reverse and challenge all of my precepts. Absolutely. And, I agree. and those precepts are nothing if not brainwashing. 